said, the Lord Jesus said, loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first or the foremost and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, that you will love your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in the parallel passage in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, he made this sweeping statement after he, after he quoted that. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus said the summation of not just the Ten Commandments, but the entire Torah and the teaching of the prophets is to love the one true God and love your neighbor with the same loyalty that you have toward your own flesh. Loving God and loving others, Jesus says, is the platform on which all of the rest of biblical instructions rest. It's the foundation. It's the, it's the summary. And I understand in our day when we hear that, the word love is thrown around, but its importance biblically can't be, can't be overstated. I understand people say, I, I love this blouse. Uh, I don't say that, obviously. I love this tie. I have fallen out of love with you, like it's some emotional attachment or something. I love pizza, which I'm very fond of pizza. But the Bible says having the kind of love that Jesus speaks of is, is more significant than that, much more significant than that. He says it's an evidence that, that we've been born again. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's an evidence that, you've, that you know God, that you abide in God, and that God abides in you. And that's understandable because love is the ultimate marker and motivator of every human heart. Every person pursues what they love, believer or unbeliever. The reason that people pursue whatever it might be... Um, Great uh, trophies or, uh, or bad things like, uh, like drugs. It's because of what it promises. They love it. They, they, they love themselves. And the object of their love, the Bible says, is really their God. Whatever that object is, the great desire of your heart is your God. And Jesus, that's why Jesus says no one can serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. Why? Because you'll love the one and you'll do what for the other? You'll hate the other. So he connects serving with, with master and love with, with Lord. Did you know that love is the one thing that will remain forever? 1 Corinthians 13, he gives the, this trifecta, faith, hope, and love. Faith is what we have now as we wait. Hope is what we, we know we'll have whenever it comes. It's an assurance of of what we will receive, and when we are glorified, that love will be perfected and it will abide forever. It will remain. Love is important. Love resulted in God sending His Son as, a, as an offering for us, for the world. And love for God is directly tied to obeying Him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Those two things are inextricably linked, serving and master, love with, with Lord. And while it may not be natural 
to think of love and serving and, and that obedience and joy go together, the Bible says they do. The Christian life is a life of love and a life of love-filled obedience to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Love for the Lord is at the core of a believer's life. And a believer's life is evidenced, that love is evidenced by keeping God's commandments. All right? This is a significant statement I'm getting ready to make. Obedience is applied love. Obedience is applied love. And when we obey God, there's a sense of joy that comes from knowing we're pleasing to Him. In fact, love, obedience, and joy are the three ingredients to genuine worship. You love God, so you obey Him, and joy comes from that, so you enjoy Him and His presence. And those three things together are genuine worship. The Christian life is motivated by covenant-keeping love, and what that looks like is a daily desire to live as it pleases the Lord. I want to do what is pleasing to the Lord. I genuinely want to do what is pleasing to the Lord this morning. Not myself, not another man, but, but the Lord. It's far. The Christian life is far from rigid discipline where you force yourself into submission. Yes, there's self-discipline. Yes, Paul talked about beating his body into subjection. You, you, have to, you have to take control by the power of the Holy Spirit, those things that want to lead you astray. But, but the Christian life is far from, from, from just rote discipline all of the time, where you force yourself into submission. It comes from a, a genuine love and a desire to please God. And that's what a disciple is, a follower Someone who lives his life learning and assimilating his teacher's ways and at the core of that relationship is committed love. And understanding that will be the difference between holy living and hypocrisy. And Jesus is going to show us what that looks like today. And on Tuesday, that's where we're at in the Passion Week, Jesus... Uh, encounters a number of rulers, and they're attempting to discredit him. And they, they do this by, by trying to ask three seemingly unanswerable questions. There's a hypocritical question about taxes. We saw that. There's an ignorant question about the resurrection. And today, there's an incriminating question about the greatest commandment. And Jesus says the fundamental distinction between being saved or lost, being in the kingdom or outside of the kingdom, is not primarily the code that you keep, the sacrifices that you offer, but who you love from the heart and obey. It's true for Israel, and it is true for us today. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34 deals with that, with that issue. And the outline of the passage is, is pretty straightforward. Jesus answers a question, he's asked a question, he answers a question, and then he asks a question of, of his own. And in answering the question, Jesus shows us what it means to truly love God. And he gives us four indispensable ingredients of genuine love for God. There is the love is exclusive worship. These are indispensable ingredients Love is exclusive worship, verses 28 and 29. Love is personal worship, in verse 30. 
Love is a reflection of worship in verse 31, and love is an invitation to worship. Exclusive, personal, a reflection, and it all comes from an invitation. And Jesus is going to teach us that this morning. Let's look at the first one. first indispensable ingredient that Jesus gives of genuine love is exclusive worship. We love God. It's based, our love is based on who God is. Look, if you would, at verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he, that's Jesus, answered them well, asked him this question. What commandment is the first of all or foremost of all? Now, I want you to note this is the fourth group that has come along and questioned Jesus. There were the Pharisees and the Herodians in the tax question. There were the Sadducees in the resurrection. And now here is the scribe, the, the last group, really, the, the lawyers, the, the jot and tittle folks, the ones who, who know, the, the, uh, the seminary uh, ivory tower eggheads come and ask Jesus a question this morning. And this man's approach is different from the rest. He's one of the scribes. So this is an individual. This is not a group. And it's a little bit different. It's a confrontation, but it seems to have a little bit different feel. He's listening to Jesus, and he can tell that Jesus is answering well. He's answering according to the law. And this man knows the law, and so he, he would have respected that. And so Jesus asked a common, so he asked Jesus a common question. And the common question is, which commandment is most important? This is a question that they divided up over and everybody asks everybody. Are you Republican or Democrat? What is the greatest commandment? That's, that's their question. It was common because the rabbis had determined that the law had 613 commands. And they disagreed on how to rank them. So he wants to know, he wants to ask Jesus, where do you rank the first one? Which is the, which is the first one? There were 248 do's, specific commands, and there are 365 don'ts, prohibitions. MacArthur said, a no for every day of the year. But what was even further, not only did they have 613 commands, each category, the do's and the don'ts, had major laws and minor laws. There were some that, that were more binding than others. And you, different people, differed on which was a major law and which was a minor law. Minor ones were less serious. It's similar to the Catholic Church today or the Roman Church. There are venial sins, forgivable, and then there are moral sins. Those that, that if God doesn't intervene in grace in some way, it's going to separate you from God forever. These it's like there's these different classifications. They had major ones and minor ones out of the, the 1613 commands. And so asking this question is like trying to figure out where Jesus as a teacher will, will land. We, we do the same thing with our lingo. We listen for words. We listen for the person where they say gospel-centered or or is the person going to say evangelism or soul winning? And, and, and I've even actually seen guys who will write the word Savior with the, with the Old English, I-O-U-R, to show that they're, that they're followers of the King James Bible. And, and we divide up over all of those kinds of things. And that's why this man is asking Jesus this question. Where do you land? 
what is your belief system? And Jesus had already done some unorthodox things, right? He's rejected their Sabbath, not the Sabbath, but their Sabbath. He's attacked the temple worship, and he's speaking against their teaching right now. And their hope, this man's hope, was that Jesus would incriminate himself and reveal that he had some errant beliefs. And he would do that by condemning Moses or giving the wrong answer about which is the first commandment. But he doesn't. Look, if you would, at verse 29, Jesus answered the question. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6. The foremost of all is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, or one Lord. He, he quotes the Shema. He, it's still recited several times a day, millions of times a day, probably right now, somewhere around the world, no doubt. The Shema is being recited, this, this passage, this from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it was given by Moses to, to Israel as they are poised to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy, as we call it, or the second law giving, was a reminder of the stipulations between God and His people before they, they enter into the promised land. You remember they wander for a while, right? And so they're basically getting ready to enter the land, and God is saying, here at the edge of the land, I promised to Abraham, I made a covenant with you, and this is how you're to live in the land in relationship to me. And I'm going to tell you that. That's the book of Deuteronomy. If you do, blessings will flow. If you violate it, curses will come. It's a pretty good summary of the book of Deuteronomy. The stipulations of living in covenant with God, God being the people of God, being in, in the presence of God, begin with the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. And you remember, probably after hearing them, the people are afraid and they ask Moses to be a mediator between, between them and God. And so Moses, the mediator, gives the essence of the law in these words that Jesus quotes. That's in Deuteronomy 6. It is an explanation of the Ten Words or the, or the Ten Commandments. And the order of Deuteronomy is very important. Deuteronomy chapter 5, God reminds Israel that He chose them in promise and delivered them from Egypt. Then comes covenant law, that's the Ten Commandments. Then fear, they fear. Then the Shema, the essence of what God desires. And Jesus, what Jesus quotes is the summary of the entire Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohu, Elohinu, Yahweh Echad. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is the only God. He is only one God. He is Israel's God. And while all of the others around the world and in the land that would be displaced... While they worship false gods, the Lord alone is the only true God. And Israel was called to hear and obey that. Israel's called to love God because of who He is. That's how it starts. Hear, O Israel, or O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, is one. His supremacy demands it. And so this is where Jesus starts. This is where the command starts. Worship of any other thing or any other one takes that which should rightfully be given to God alone and gives it to something or someone that doesn't deserve it. It's sin of both commission and omission. It's a committed sin because 
you give love to, you give worship to something other than God. It's omission because you, in doing that, you can't serve two masters. You fail to give love to, to God alone. God is not saying in this passage or in Deuteronomy, please, please, Israel, don't worship them, worship me. It's not what he's saying. He's declaring, love me, because I alone am worthy. I am one, I am God, I am the one true God, and I have chosen you, and you are my people, and I'm going to live in your midst, in the land that I promised you. To do otherwise is an offense, because it's a rejection of who God is. And there's none like the Lord. Love begins, love is exclusive worship, and it's based on who God is. That's why you should love God, because of who He is. There's none like the Lord. He is holy, completely separate from everything, yet merciful to those who are not holy. He is a living, personal Lord, separate from the world, and yet continuously active in it. He is unlimited by space, and yet He created and sustains the cosmos, its laws, and its boundaries. He is beyond time, nevertheless active in it and, and relates to, to every life, home, city, and nation bound by that same time that He created. He is transcendent, and yet He relates to us. He is uniquely other than, than everything else. He is eternal in existence, unchangeable in essence, omniscient in knowledge, omnipotent in power. He is altogether faithful, glorious in splendor, gracious in dealing, patient with all, wrath-filled towards sin, long-suffering with man, distinct from all in every way, and yet knowable because He chose to reveal Himself in creation and in the Bible. He alone is God, and He is the Sovereign Lord. It's not enough just to be devoted you must be devoted to the one true God. And so, genuine love, biblical love, begins with exclusive worship. But that's not all. We're not just called to love God because of who He is. We're called to love Him because He first loved us. The second indispensable ingredient of genuine love is personal worship. It's exclusive and it's also personal. Love is based on who God is, and love is also based on what God has done for us. Look, if you would, at verse 30. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love is based on what God has done. He is, he is our God. In your Bible, L-O-R-D should be capitalized. It's the covenant name for God. It's emphasizing that He established a relationship. And notice it says, your God. And that was His doing. It was His doing with Israel and it was His doing with you. Our call to love God is based on relationship, the relationship that He established with, with us. You were far, and He brought you near. You were unclean, and He cleansed you. You 
were a rebel and He made you a friend. And our call to love God is based on His covenant to, to love us, what He has done. Does it not make your heart sore whenever you think about how far you were and how near Jesus has brought you? It does me. Do you really grasp what that means? I ask you that question because I asked the question to myself as I was, as I was studying. God, the, the one and only true God, made a personal covenant with you. Not Timberlake Baptist Church, not the nation of Israel, although He did those things, but with you. Keto Cooper, John Alley, Nancy Nee, Irving Wallace, Brian Farrell. He made a personal commitment to you. He loved you before you were ever born. He chose you. Don't get caught up in the basis of His choice. But the Bible clearly says that you were far from God and He set His love on you. You couldn't get to Him and He came to you. He committed Himself to you unalterably. He vowed Himself to you forever. Nothing can change that. Nothing can break God's vow. It's exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans. Nothing shall separate you. He based this commitment on Himself, not on your purity, on your pursuit, or on your holiness. I mean, you realize, I mean, think about it. Your relationship, the commitment that God has for you, is unto holiness, but it's not based on your holiness. Because you're unholy. And so am I. And if that was the case, then God's commitment to you would ebb and flow to the extent that you obey and you don't obey any better than I do. But He's placed His Holy Spirit of God in you to empower you to obey. And then He He promises to nurse you along in this thing called sanctification until the day that He'll totally remove sin and bring you into His very presence. And He made that promise and commitment to you in covenant. It's irrevocable. It's based on His promise that He made. Nothing can change that. That is the basis of your relationship. He will never turn away from you or let you go. He made an irrevocable promise. No matter what we do, He'll never break that loyal love. He can't, because He swore by His own name. He can't deny Himself, the Bible says. This is what Jesus means when He says, All the Father has given Me will come to Me, and I will lose none of them, and no man will pluck them out of My hand. You are in the Father's hand, and His grip is irrevocable. It's firm. And Jesus says in verse 30, Because of this truth, that God is the only true God, and that He is your God, we're to be completely devoted to Him. It's a pretty good trait, isn't it? You love God with all that you are because He committed Himself to you. Total love, total devotion, total worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. It's not meant to divide you up into like little compartments. Okay, well, I'm obeying this and I'm okay, I'm not obeying that. Its emphasis is the extent of our love. 
How much should we love God? With all that we are. Love Him with all of your heart, your inner man, with your mind, with your, with your will. With all of your soul, your, your nefesh, your living being, your life. Love God with all your mind, with all of your thoughts, with all of your intellect, with what you think and what you refuse to think. All of your strength, with all of your force. In a attempt to obey this, if you've ever seen Jewish people pray when they're rocking back and forth, they're trying to obey this command. They're putting their whole body into, into their prayers. I don't think that's what God, what God meant. It just means all of you, all of your strength, full devotion to Him. It's total devotion from inward to outward. From material, the material part of you, to the immaterial part of you. From motive to action, from thought to will. All of these in harmony are to love God, to be devoted to Him because of who He is and because He has made a covenant relationship with you. He married you irrevocably. And what that looks like is obedience and loyalty to what God said. So are you loyal to God? Could people tell whose team you're on? Who's the captain of your soul? The master of your faith? Do you obey Him? That's why Jesus says, if you love me, then keep my commandments. It sounds simple, but that's really where the test of loyalty lies, isn't it? When you know what God has commanded and what pleases God and what God desires, there is a moment in that moment when you move from, from desire to action, when you move from, from temptation or testing to will, that is the moment where you declare your loyalty, where I declare whether I truly love God or not. It has nothing to do with whether God loves me. God already loves me, and God loves me regardless. Now, He may spank me, but He loves me because He spanks me. It's about me. Choose this day whom you will serve. Who is God, Israel? Who is God, Timberlake? He's the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you give loyalty to Him. The Marines were not the first ones to come up with Semper Fi. Are you faithful? When given a choice, do you obey God or do you obey what your flesh wants? Sadly, more of what my flesh wants than God. And it absolutely breaks my heart. There is a majority of my prayers that are spent after praying for you or for others, praying that God would work in me, that God would do whatever He needed to do, that God would take His Word and pierce my soul to, to grant me faith, to help me overcome, to remove whatever it might be in my life that would, that, that that stumble, that causes me to stumble or gets in my way so that I would love Him more, that I would obey Him more. But my desire is to do that. My desire is there because I'm saved. It's the action that I'm praying about. You see the distinction? And it's because that you love Him 
You want to be like Him. That's the third ingredient. Love is a reflection of worship. It's exclusive. Biblical love, genuine love is for God alone. There's only one God. It's personal. It's because you're in relationship to Him that He initiated. And you're responding. You have a part in that. You respond. He initiates. And then it's a reflection. Love is a reflection. As Jesus explains to us what this means. Look, if you would, at verse 31. It's best expressed by obeying what God commands. The second is this. That you will love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He ends with this definitive statement. Jesus goes a step further than what the scribe asked for. God's not stingy. <laughs> He'll answer whatever you need and then some, if you're willing to hear. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I hate that I even have to explain this to you because of our culture or because of our own hearts, but God is not saying that you should love yourself more. It's not what He's saying here. He's not saying if you love yourself more, then, then you'll love others more. In fact, it's just the opposite. Your problem is not that you don't love yourself enough or that you need self-care. That's utterly ridiculous. Your problem and my problem is that you love yourself too much. That's our problem. It is a major issue. He is saying it's a natural thing for you to love yourself. You don't love anyone or anything more than you love yourself. That's the reason that you choose to disobey the Creator. Because your heart wants to be God. And so you're commanded to love others, and I'm commanded to love others with that same level of commitment that you have for yourself. You, there's a similar command in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives. And he uses this same idea. Why does he use that? Because... We have no problem caring for ourselves. Our problem is we don't care for others. It isn't natural after the fall unless you have the love of God in your heart. And so Jesus is saying love for others is a reflection of your love for God. If it's in you, it will come out by mirroring His love to others. And that's genuine worship. Pure religion and undefiled in the sight of God is loving others. In James 1, that's widows and orphans, those who can't give us anything in return. Love is not doing for others, so they'll do something back for you. That's what the world does. That's 50-50. That's partnership. That's cooperation. That's not biblical love. You love only Him. You love Him because He is your God, and then you give that same kind of love to other people. You show the same kind of love to your Son that God shows to you. I'm to have the same kind of love for my wife that God shows to me. I love others with an irrevocable love, with a loyal love. It's not transactional. It's not emotional. That's why this idea of I fall out of love or I fall in love is, is unbiblical. What does it mean to love others? 
I'm patient. Why do I have to be told to be patient, that love is patient? Because there's plenty of reason to be impatient with other people. Plenty of reason to be impatient with me. I'm kind. Why? Because there's plenty of reason to be unkind. Because other people are sinful and love themselves. I keep no record of wrongs. I remain committed no matter what is done to me. I stoop down to others, not call them to come up to me. That's love. I serve regardless of what I get. I am loyal to the end. That's love. That's loving others. To the extent that you express that to other people, you are expressing the heart of God because it's in you. I mean, look at the other side of the coin. Genuine love for others is the exact opposite of what you see in the, in the world. It's the exact opposite. The world is 50-50. I'm committed until I stop getting what I want or what I like. And then I'm out of here. That's the way the world looks at love. And God's love is not, I love you if you love me back. It's, I love you by free choice regardless of what you give me or if you deserve it. And I will keep loving you even when you don't deserve it. And that love may lead me to call you out. It may lead me to rebuke you. It may lead me to discipline you. It may lead me to wash you with the Word. It may lead me to tell you the truth. It may lead me to do something to tell you that you don't, something you don't want to hear. But I will be committed to that. I will be loyal to that. Because that's the kind of love that God has for us, isn't it? I have two names of individuals in here that I'm probably not going to mention, but I was thinking, how do I explain this? It it looks like what people do when they choose to foster children and love them even though they have no reason to other than Christ. It looks like a father forgiving his son when, when he does him wrong. It's the kind of commitment that God has for us. Is that the kind of commitment that you have for other people? Now, notice it says love your neighbor. Do you have that kind of love for your own family, your own flesh and blood, your wife, your children? Do you have that kind of love for the people sitting around you, the people that you've made covenant with at Timberlake Baptist Church? Jesus says do that for everyone, people outside of this church. You see why you can't do it unless the love of God is in your heart? And that is what God is inviting you to have. Love is from an invitation to worship. Look, if you would, at verse 32. Look at how the scribe answers. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that He is one, He's the only God, and there's no, other, no one else besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe is pleased with Jesus' answer, and so he adds his own exposition. You know, preachers... They can't just say yes or no. They've got to say something more. 
He says the same thing that Paul says. If I give my body to be burned and have not love, I am nothing. If, if, I, if I give burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I don't love the one true and living God and love others, then, then it profits me nothing. He's pleased with Jesus' answer. Jesus seems to be pleased with His. Look at verse 34. This is different from the other two questions. And when Jesus saw that He had answered intelligently... He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Jesus sees his heart, knows he's sincere. And he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You say, where's the invitation? It's right there. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. That implies he's not in the kingdom yet. And this man is a scribe. And if anyone was getting into the kingdom, he was, because he was a studier of the law. He knew the law to the point that he could ask somebody else what is the greatest commandment and be able to tell whether he answered properly or not, correctly or not. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus says the same thing to this man that he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee. Except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says to this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God, but you're not in the kingdom of God yet. And then he shows him how to come the rest of the way. Look, if you would, at verse 35. Jesus began to say, as He taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the Son of David? David himself said, in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make my enemies, uh, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him, but I can tell you one in the crowd that was listening intently. It was the scribe that Jesus addresses here. It's Jesus' turn to ask a question. And the scribe surely would have known this passage. If he was a diligent student... He may have even asked this question because Psalm 110 produces this quandary. How can David's son be David's Lord? The Lord said to my Lord. The God of the Shema said to my Lord, that's David's God, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. How could David's son be David's Lord? How could the coming Messiah that everyone expected to be a man, to be a king, also be called God or Lord by David? That title was reserved for God alone. That's the question that Jesus asked this man. And the answer gets you into the kingdom. Not the answer to the greatest commandment. Because you can know the greatest commandment. You can know to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. 
and you can know love your neighbor as yourself, and you be close to the kingdom but not be in the kingdom. What puts you in the kingdom is understanding that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and that He was, all, he was also God, and because of His work, He can give you a new heart to where you can truly love God and truly love others. And the answer that gets you in the kingdom is, is found in that passage. And that's because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was God. And that God was standing before this scribe, inviting him to answer this question and believe. And that's exactly what God is doing to you this morning. He's having someone much less than Jesus Christ stand before you. But to speak the words of Jesus Christ to you, which has the same authority, and ask you the question, while you may know the commandments, and you may believe that there's one God who is Jesus Christ to you, is He your Lord? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is not just David's Lord, but your Lord? That He came as the Messiah to save you? And as God, He calls you to worship Him because of who He is? You say, yes, I believe that. Is your love exclusive? Is it only for Him? Is your love personal? Is it with all of your heart, all you are? Does it move you to live your whole life for others? Because that's what God does. And if so, enjoy listening to Him. And if not, bow the knee. The love that He has for you is inexplicable. And that love has already been offered freely. He's already told you what you need to do. You need to turn from yourself, from loving yourself and following yourself, and turn to God. And you need to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ the provision that God's made to cover all of that sin and ask Him to give you a new heart. And He will. The Holy Spirit of God will take up residence in you. And then from the Spirit of God in your heart, there will be new desires and new desires to love Him and to love Him more, new desires to give yourself for others. And that will just continue, continue, continue until He takes you to heaven where your love will be perfected. Won't that be a wonderful day? It'll be a wonderful day. Won't you bow your heads?